Did you know that the Pop Culture Preservation Society depends on support from listeners like you to keep our podcast up and running? We are an independent operation, creating, producing, distributing, and promoting the podcast by ourselves and paying for it out of our own pockets because we love it and we think it's worth it to preserve the well-loved cultural nuggets from our Gen X youth. If you'd like to become a supporter of the PCPS, go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search for Pop Culture Preservation Society. Our Patreon supporters are like our pit crew, giving us the fuel we need to keep on trucking. And as a Patreon supporter, you'll also get special thank you gifts, like video recordings of our episodes, after the episode discussions, invitations to live events over Zoom, and the occasional blooper delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening and for being a part of our society. According to Petula Clark, famed for singing, Downtown. I love that song. She and Karen um, were propositioned to partake in a threesome after they stopped by Elvis Presley's dressing room after a concert in Las Vegas. And Petula said Elvis looked kind of shocked when they didn't accept the offer because he'd never been, like, denied what he wanted. So, Ladies and gentlemen, this is why we love Carolyn's Rabbit Hole. Hello, world, there's a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. Welcome to the Pop Culture Preservation Society, the podcast for people born in the big wheel generation who know exactly what goes on a sesame seed bun. We believe our Gen X childhoods gave us unforgettable songs, stories, characters, and images. And if we don't talk about them, they'll disappear, like Marshall, Will, and Holly on a routine expedition. And today, we're kicking off Season 5 by saving a duo that doesn't need saving because we're all still listening to them today and loving them as much as we did in the 1970s. Today, we are celebrating the Carpenters. I'm Carolyn. I'm Kristen. And I'm Michelle. And we are your pop culture preservationists. I told Brian Mm -hmm. this morning I felt like it was the first day of school. It does feel like the first day of school. Just because we've had so many chats over the past 10 weeks, like mm-hmm. bi-weekly oh gosh, or yeah. more, or via text, but chatting about this stuff, like when we have a topic, it's just so fun and it's different. Mm-hmm. It's season five, that's like, that's big deal, you guys. You know, if we were a, a sitcom, we would be eligible for syndication now. Like you have to go five <gasps> oh my seasons, gosh, right. I think, and then you can go, isn't it five? I, yeah, I think yes, yeah. and then you can make money for the rest of yes, your life. for the oh. rest of our lives. <laughs> Well, that would be nice. <laughs> yes. If we know. only had a paycheck. If we only <laughs> made anything. Yeah. Right. Um, we do it I think out one of thing love. That is, um, one thing that is very apparent to me coming today is how much we missed each other. I know. Even though we yes. did see each other and we were chatting, but being in this room talking about these things has is something that's become really important to me. I yeah. was saying, um, I think... Uh, I don't know, over the past couple of weeks when I've been listening to our episodes as they've been coming out on Mondays, and I've been thinking, just because it's been a while since we we recorded, and I've been thinking, oh, that's such a fun conversation. Like, I want to have that con- Oh, wait, I'm part of that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and then I've been getting really excited to get back in the conversation with you guys. Um, and we have some really fun stuff coming up in season five, don't we? Yes, we oh, do. Oh, gosh, we do. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. This is maybe going to be my favorite season yet, although... You know, I probably think that every season. And then, um, of course, there were even more things we wanted to try to get in season five. So 
We'll have to just you know, season that six. There are too many things. We'll never. Yes. My husband always says, "What happens when you run out of things to say?" And I just go, <laughs> "Guffaw!" <laughs> you know, like that's ever going to happen. Do you guys remember though, back when we first were before we ever recorded an, an episode at all, we were brainstorming a list. I remember sitting out on my deck, uh, Carolyn. It was very soon after you said, "We're going to do a podcast." And, I'm going to do a podcast and you guys are doing it with me. And I was brainstorming things. And I remember brainstorming things like flowers in the attic. And I remember just chuckling to myself like, oh my God, remember the blue lagoon? Uh, <laughs> and as you guys know, I do. Um, and, and brainstorming. And I think I came up with like 12, maybe 12 things. Oh and then God, we all funny. got together and we did that. But we did have that conversation. Do you guys remember like, how, what, what do we, how do we, you know, what if we mm -hmm. run out of the well runs dry and you guys listening? You should see the shared note we have. The well will never run dry. It will That's never right. run dry. No worries. There. This one, let's focus. This one, you guys, is, yeah, this is a big one, one we've been waiting for. And this mm -hmm. one is, as you guys listening are soon about to hear, this one comes with a lot of feelings and a lot of research. How did you guys oh um, like researching this episode? I have 32 pages <laughs> of notes, listeners. <laughs> So if you want to know what I've been doing for the past three weeks, I've been mainlining the carpenters. Ooh, you, yeah, exactly. I don't know. I feel like I've been waiting to talk about this for decades. I know. Yeah. There's Since so you were 10 much. years old. I mean, we I could probably have a whole season just devoted to the carpenters. I could not, for every, you know, one new thing I learned, there were three more questions I'd have about that thing. And I'd be diving oh. into that. I had notes mm -hmm. all over the house. You yeah. should see, I don't. I don't know how many pages because some were written on napkins, some were written in the car when we were in California on just whatever I could find because I didn't have any paper with me, but I was listening to the yeah. music. And um, yeah, it's just crazy. Stuff is all over. So I'm sure there's stuff that I am even forgetting to include. Carolyn's got her shirt on, everyone. So if you're a Patreon mm -hmm. supporter, we put any of this on. Or actually, I think I'm going to put a picture on um, Instagram. So go back and, and look at it. So you guys, do you think we should just um, get into yeah, it? Should we it. just get started? Let's oh my do goodness. it. Let's do it. When I was young, I'd listen to the radio Waiting for my favorite songs When we think of the music that defines the 70s, it's guaranteed that a huge percentage of people immediately think of the Carpenters. Their songs are timeless, and Karen's voice remains one of, if not the most, pure voices of all time. So, you guys, we all come to this table with our own feelings about the music and the duo, and know those of you listening do as well. And we are quite certain there will be more than a few of you shouting at your devices some facts that we will almost certainly leave out. So, just know that we hear you, even though we cannot hear you. <laughs> um, and we want you to know that covering all there is to cover about the Carpenters would be an astronomical task, and we only have one hour. Well... I mean, two. we'll be talking for four, <laughs> we'll cut it to two, but um, we already know this is going to be a two-parter, and we promise to try our best to do their story and their music justice. If you would like a thorough dive into all things Carpenters, we highly recommend the gorgeous book, Carpenters, The Musical Legacy, by Mike Sidoni Lennox and Chris May, that includes details of their lives from Richard Carpenter. They sat down with him for like, I don't know, something like over 100 hours, and they ha also has um, hundreds of photos from his personal archives, uh, many that have never been seen before. And that is a book we have shared a lot on our social media. All three of 
us used that book primarily in our research for this episode because it really is the only one that's truly sanctioned um, and approved, um, gets the Richard Carpenter mm-hmm. stamp of approval. It's a great um, gift item. If you, it's, it's the epitome oh, yeah. of a birthday gift. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful. Love it. You know, I, it, I'm it. embarrassed to say I got it last fall and I, the photos alone are what struck me. And I spent a lot of time looking at the photos and it wasn't until the past couple of weeks, I've really started reading it. And oh my gosh, it's, it's brilliantly written. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very fast reading. I mean, you look at it and you, th- I remember thinking that's going to take me years to get through and it's, it's fantastic. And this is behind the scenes um, information. Mm-hmm. Right. Stuff you can't know without talking to Richard Carpenter. No. And like I said, photos that you can't see mm-hmm. without going down into his basement. Yeah. Basically. Um, okay, so let's dive in. It's yesterday once more. So tell me, we all wanna we all wanna talk a little bit um about what the music of the carpenters means to you, Kristen. Well, and I think this is an important part of the show because what you'll find is that for a lot of people, The Carpenters is really personal. And as we talk about the music, we'll be able to figure out why that is. So my parents were not popular music people. They were both musicians. They were descended from musicians. They took their record collection very seriously. So our house was filled with classics and musicals and operas. But one of the few pop music albums that they had was The Carpenters, the tan album, the one that opens like an envelope, um, which just, I thought that was the greatest thing ever. It opens (laughs) like an envelope. (laughs) And for all the people who say that the Carpenters were cheesy, they need to understand that musicians know. This comes from the musicians. This was a voice. These were arrangements that shouldn't be ignored. This is what the musicians know. So the Carpenters passed some kind of test in my house. And for me, the presence of that album was really significant because it was my parents participating in my culture, in the world of my radio life. And the fact that they passed judgment on was like, yeah, this is good stuff, Kristen. You have good taste. That meant something Mm -hmm. to me. This was compounded by an Instagram post that I saw quite a while ago, maybe five years ago or so. And it was a respected source. It was like Rolling Stone or something like that, asking for people to comment, who do you think is the best female voice of the rock and roll era? And in amongst Whitney Houston and Aretha Franklin and Adele, I kept seeing Karen Carpenter, Karen Carpenter, Karen Carpenter, Karen Carpenter. And it surprised me because of the source that it was coming from. It surprised me that people were coming out of the closet to say this. And it made me think, people get it. The stigma is no longer there. They understand what a musician she was and what an asset she was to the world. And I felt validated. I felt very seen. Well, for me, you guys, the Carpenters means connection. The music of the Carpenters is a through line for me. It's not nostalgic like a Sean Cassidy song or the Grease soundtrack. It has been a constant in my life as long as I have had agency Mm -hmm. in the choice of music I listen to. I remember borrowing, in quotation marks, the singles album from my parents, you know, that dark brown one. Yeah. and putting it on my little Sears record player. <laughs> and it probably never left my room after that. It kind of became mine. And eventually I got a little bit of a kind of a turntable with little speakers and played it on there. Um, and then when I purchased my first real stereo with babysitting money, and by real, I mean it had an eight-track tape player nice. in it and the turntable, wow. I had to get an eight-track tape. And one of my first purchases was... 
the Carpenters singles. Mm-hmm. Had that as an eight track up through my 1980 Mercury Capri going to high school. <laughs> and the Carpenters went with me. Then I went to college and I needed, of course, a boom box. One of my first purchases was on cassette, the Carpenters mm-hmm. Brown singles album. Oh my God, it's the same went to album you buy me. over and over again. The same album, oh my God. but I have new ways to play yeah. it. So, of course, take it to college and all the memories there because you put it in the, I was the only one in our suite of three that had um, a way to play music. So we would listen to that and the James Taylor um, Greatest Hits album over and over again. Um, And then, of course, I graduate and Andy and I, right after we got married, purchased our first CD player. Oh, my God. (laughs) So, of course, when I order from Columbia Record and Tape Club for my 10 albums for a penny um, or CDs, one of my first. CDs out of that collection was the Carpenters singles. Wow. Fast forward to Mother's Day 2006, first iPod I ever got, <laughs> first downloaded album, the Carpenters Oh my singles. gosh. It is the only album that I can tell you has stayed with me mm-hmm. consistently and I listen to it enough that that's why it's not really nostalgic in the way of hearing a song I haven't heard yep. since 1978 exactly. or something. Yep. It has um, been been this constant in my life. I love that. I love that you can almost mark certain events in your life by the Carpenters album. Yeah. And by what what the media, what kind of media you're using. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I've had it on every format of media that they've ever been um, imprinted on. How about you, Michelle? I, to this day, I listen to the Carpenters either on playlists I've created or on just playlists other people have curated, Carpenter's Radio, or the albums I own. You guys, I think just about every single day. And um, Karen's voice and just all the songs, even the up-tempo ones, are just my calm. They're my balm. They're my comfort. And when I was thinking about this and trying, I was really struggling with how do I describe what her voice means to me? And I found in the book that we just mentioned, John Bettis, who was their longtime lyricist and good friend, he says it better than I ever could. And he says this, she sings as if she were singing in whispers about heartbreaks to a trusted friend. In her absence, her voice has become almost oracular, someone or something one consults when life overwhelms. If humanity makes it as a species, she will be a source of solace for generations to come. I agree. And, you know, her voice is basically, you know, her voice is one we consult when life overwhelms. And that's what it is, Mm -hmm. which makes it kind of sad that I just said I listen to her daily. (laughs) You're overwhelmed daily. You guys are getting a little little (laughs) glimpse into my, you know, my life, my anxiety. Um, But that's what it is to me. I mean, her voice is almost like imprinted on my soul. You guys talking about, yes. Kristen, you talking about growing up with it. My mom um, listened to the Carpenters. My mom was a huge Barbara Streisand, the Carpenters. I mean, all the, you know, Dionne Warwick, Johnny Mathis, a lot of what now we kind of think is easy listening, soft rock. It's almost like it, it just became imprinted on my soul, mm-hmm. her her voice. Um, mm-hmm. And then like, like you say, um, Carolyn, with um, buying the albums and the CDs, I actually do remember a period of about, I'm going to say about 15 years where I think I thought I was maybe too cool to listen to the Carpenters, you know? Um, and I just didn't. It wasn't a, I don't think it was a cassette tape I ever owned. Um, but I do remember that when I was about 27, um, 
And we, um, you know, my new little family, we had moved to Indiana and we had a like a, a five disc CD player. Big deal, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I remember going and finding the double CD of The Carpenter's Greatest Hits. And it felt like Christmas morning to me. It felt <laughs> like an old friend coming home. And I played it in my car. I played I played that those two CDs until they were worn out. And at the time, I had about a one, maybe two-year-old who then was getting these songs imprinted on her soul, just yeah. the same way mm-hmm. I had, who that little girl is now 26 and absolutely loves the Carpenters, um, knows all the words to the songs. And probably if I asked her... She would say the same thing. They're just something she just remembers always hearing. Actually, she's listening right now, I know, because she listens to all our episodes. So, um, um, hello. And <laughs> I bet that's true for you, too. Um, we just, it's just something that's always kind of um, been with us. And there is a resurgence um, of popularity in the Carpenters amongst people in their 20s. It's mm-hmm, really yeah. fun to watch. And it's as if the people who thought that they were cheesy, um, their time is over, and that is what it meant to our what this music meant to our parents. I recently went to see a Carpenters tribute band at our local dinner <gasps> theater, and so we go to this thing, and we're kind of, of course we're the old we're the youngest ones there. Everybody there is in their late sixties and their early seventies, and it was so consistent that it surprised us a little bit. And so we're just sort of examining the crowd. It was all couples, and when the music begins. One by one, they would turn to each other and they would look at each other all moony-eyed and they would sing to each other. And I thought, oh my God, all of these people had the carpenters at their wedding. That's why they're here. It was beautiful. I'm getting getting goosebumps right now just thinking about it. Yeah, I agree. And um, I'm going to follow up with what you were saying about um, just the generationality, if that's even a word, of this music. It is now. Mm -hmm. Um, it is a word. You just made it up. We like yeah. to. We, okay. We, word now. we have lots of words we like to. Re- yeah. Relatability. I love it. Well, um, relatabilityness was one recently. Yes, and and it's that too because um, as I said earlier, the Carpenters' music means connection to me. So it's this connection to my whole life, this thread. But it's also a direct connection to my dad. Oh, I just Aww. remember singing this with him in the car, um, playing the album on his quadraphonic stereo. <laughs> By the way, I watched a documentary where Richard Carpenter was bragging all about his new, brand new state of the art. This is the new thing, quadraphonic stereo. And he explained what it meant. I'd never known what it meant. Um, but that was just always a thing. And any time a Carpenter song came on, we were singing it in the car all through my life. I mean, that mm-hmm. was those were that was music that he enjoyed. And um, recently, in the within the last year, I had the opportunity, uh, my mom moved, as you guys know, and had to go help her move stuff. And one of the things we had to do was go through this cedar chest where she kind of kept things that were special to my dad that she had found after he passed away. And on the very top um, of his cedar chest was <gasps> oh a carpenter's. Yeah. So I grabbed it. And um, obviously, it's right here. And it just really spoke to me. And then um, just a few months ago, we were cleaning out Andy's parents' um, apartment. They have both since passed away. And I came the last day just to look through the donate pile. And on the top of the donate pile oh was the Carpenters <gasps> Classics on. Volume 2, which was in their car. So now I own, yeah. it's in my possession, these two um, 
CDs that they were listening to up until mm-hmm. late into their life. The very end. This means as much to me today as it did, you know, 30 years ago. Okay, that speaks a lot to um, my secret weapon. I'm going to tell you about my secret weapon right now. When people come over to my house, let's say I'm having people over for Christmas or I'm having people over for dinner, my secret weapon when you're having people over is to play the Carpenters on vinyl, no matter who it is that's coming over. And inevitably, the people will stop and be like, Oh, my parents had this. Oh, I love this song. <laughs> or I love this song. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and it's like the, it stops them in their tracks. It's universal. I've never had somebody ignore it. I've never had somebody go, oh, my God, are you playing the Carpenters? I've never had that. I've only had well, people go, oh, kick them out of your house. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I guess we're not. I mean, for real. I'm sorry. Here's yeah. the door. <laughs> You guys, I have a really fun fact, though. I know I've shared it with you, but listeners, you're about to hear it for the first time. My great uncle Marvin, who I was really, really close to growing up, he was the carpenter's dry cleaner. <laughs> um, he owned Downey Cleaners in Downey, California. Uh, Marvin Mangrum, if any of you are listening that are like, oh, I used to go to Downey Cleaners back in the 70s. Um, and when we would go visit, I would help out Uncle Marvin at the front counter. Um, I mean, this is an old-time cleaners where you... It was hot and sweaty in there. They're steam. They're cleaning the clothes behind me, you know. And mm-hmm. I always hoped I was going to see them oh God, come in so because funny. he said they came in all the time, or their parents <sighs> came in. Um, and he said they were the nicest people. But yeah, he cleaned all their um, their touring clothes and their oh my costumes, God, their costumes? And everything. Not yeah, just like he cleaned all the it. clothes. In oh, their he closet. was like a super good cleaner. Like like Downey Cleaners was like where it was at. Like Whoa. that's where you got your clothes <laughs> cleaned. Um, so yeah, that was sort of his claim to fame that um, Uncle Marvin, great Uncle Marvin. Did he have a, like he an a eight by too. 10 glossy of them hanging? Yeah, really? The, you know what? I can't remember if he did or not. Um, but um, yeah, that's that's my fun fact. That's my fun little um, that's a good legacy one degree for of separation. Yeah. 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 I love that. So before they moved to Downey, they lived in New Haven, Connecticut, where Richard was born in 1946 and Karen followed four years later. It was important to their parents, Harold and Agnes, for the family to have a solid middle-class upbringing, where their mother kept a spotless home and modeled the perfect housewife and stay-at-home mom. Richard's love of music was apparent at an early age, as he listened to the music of Rachmaninoff, Tchaikovsky, and others from his father's extensive record collection. Richard began piano lessons at the age of eight, but really got frustrated really quickly. I think probably because he was such this child prodigy, mm-hmm, it was I almost agree. like, mm-hmm. you're going too slow, yeah. pick it up. But um, at eight, he kind of, after a year, he stopped these piano lessons uh, and by age 11 had pretty much taught himself how to play just by ear. And his parents then took him uh, to take lessons at the Yale School of Music. So we're getting serious Mm -hmm. here, guys. Yeah. Meanwhile, we have Karen, four years younger, and she had a lot of interest, everything (laughs) from... um, She liked music. She liked listening to these albums with her brother down in the basement. But she also loved hanging out with the neighborhood kids. She loved playing baseball. The New York Yankees were her favorite team. She actually, um, and there are pictures of this in the book, got a toy machine gun for Christmas, I think, one year, and loved playing Army with (laughs) friends in the neighborhood. And she was just outdoors a lot. People said she was, you know, kind of tomboyish. She had a paper route. That made made me so excited to think. (laughs) Yeah. We never called them paper girls. No, we didn't. Because I remember when the paper boy would come to collect, like, his money from my parents when we had our, you know, subscription or whatever. But it was never... 
even the paper person. It was always the a paper, paper boy. boy Can so. you think about it? Somebody yeah. out there had Karen Carpenter as their paper boy. Right. It could be How like cool somebody our parents' age when they were children had Karen Carpenter delivering their paper. Wow. Yeah. Pretty fun. Um, so she, like I said, she had varied interests. and Music was just kind of one of a few. But it was apparent that Richard had some serious talent. And so his parents decided if he's going to be doing this professionally, we got to get him to where that has a much better chance of happening than New Haven, Connecticut. We need to move out to California. Hence our trip to Downey because they knew they needed to be near L.A. And Downey mm-hmm. is a town outside of um, Los Angeles. So they picked up and moved there in 1963. And then Richard's first kind of foray into professionally playing music was for the um, Downey United Methodist Church where he mm-hmm. played the organ. And one of the fun things I read that he did was he would make some popular tunes of the day, you know, something from the Beatles, sound more church-like and hymn-like, oh, and he would play those for these weddings for that he would be paid for and oh my God, um, that's so and funny. take out some of the hymn stuff. So, again, it's not just the playing of the instrument. It is the arrangement, the musicality uh-huh. of it. He could just see all of that. Um, okay, so then in 1964, he enrolls in Cal State Long Beach, and he, there he meets future collaborator and songwriter John Bettis, along with tuba player Wes Jacobs. Oh, that's Those so names random. you'll hear later. The tuba player? Yes. Yeah. That same year, Karen enrolled in Downey High School, and she had learned from Richard that she could get out of taking gym if she was in the marching band. Oh, my God. She's one so, of us. She is. Oh, I know. She heard about those traumatic gym yes. stories. And she said, didn't want to play dodgeball. <laughs> That's right. So she goes to the um, to the band director and basically says, "I want to join." And he says, "Okay, what instrument do you play?" And she said, "I really don't play an instrument because at that point she really didn't." And so he gives her the Glockenspiel to play. Which I always is wanted a, to play the I Glockenspiel did too when it was when they. And and I like never got chosen in music class to play the glockenspiel. <laughs> well, guess what? Karen didn't want to play oh. the glockenspiel. Sorry oh. to tell you. Yeah, she just wanted as soon as she was in the percussion um the percussion, what do we call that? I was say uh, department. Section. Department. Right. <laughs> section. Right. section. I think section. section. <laughs> yeah, the section. Um S- she stay with us. I know. <laughs> yeah, We're all our brains are all I don't it's, know it's what's gonna wrong. take us a while to ease back into these conversations. <laughs> That's right. Um so she then was attracted to the drums. So she befriended one of her bandmates, Frankie Chavez, who was this amazing drummer. And she said, would you teach me, kind of get me started with this stuff? And he did. And I guess we could say the rest is history. He's got a ticket to ride. He's got a ticket to ride. It's serendipitous. I mean, think about how awful gym class was. If it wasn't for awful gym class, she wouldn't have joined the marching band, and then she wouldn't have been given the glockenspiel, and she wouldn't have been in percussion. She wouldn't have met Frankie. She wouldn't have been given drums. Yeah. Thank you. That There was at least one benefit of awful gym class and dodgeball. There you go. Thank you, mean gym teacher. Um, um, Okay, so now we know Karen's got some um, skills going on. We obviously know Richard does. Later that year, Karen joins her brother and our tuba player friend, Wes Jacobs, <laughs> to form the Richard Carpenter Trio. In mid-1966, the Richard Carpenter Trio entered the Hollywood Bowl annual Battle of the Bands, and they won. And that gave them a contract with RCA Records. So, 
Now we're back in Downey. Karen graduates from high school early 1967. She's awarded a very prestigious award in California, the John Philip Sousa Band Award. And um, then she goes on to join her brother at Long Beach State, at Cal State Long Beach as a music major. Uh, meanwhile, the R- Richard Carpenter trio has now disbanded, but he and John Bettis get a job um, working at Disneyland. And I thought this was really funny because I could totally picture this. They're working um, at, at what I would imagine is um, that little hot dog stand on Main Street USA <laughs> is, on yep. Casey's Corner. It is. Yeah. And, you know, it's like it's supposed to be playing ragtime jazz and that kind of thing. And the um, director of like amusement entertainment rounds the corner one day and they're playing popular music. They were taking requests and they're playing Ooh. like stuff from the doors and <laughs> that's against Disney policy. So Mr. Gooder, Victor yeah. Gooder, um, the manager, director, fires them. So they, um, and they actually, Richard wrote a song later that's on <laughs> one of their albums called Mr. Gooder mm-hmm. where he really that's on close to you, I nails think. Mr. Gooder. Yeah. He's not too happy with him. While they're in college, Karen, Richard, and others form a group called Spectrum. And that group um, sends out demos to some record labels, and they actually get um, some gigs. The group eventually breaks up, and Karen and Richard become the duo that we know today. And from there, they were able to get um, a demo record produced. And then we're off to the races. For sure. I mean, and quick, like a horse race. Um, So they have this demo record. And they shipped it around, but they just kept getting met with closed doors. And Karen had always felt that A&M would be a good fit because they were a label that paid attention to the artists and really respected their artistry. So a friend of a friend, I think even of a friend, <laughs> there's several friends involved, ends up delivering their demo to Herb Alpert. Yes, you are correct, that Herb Alpert of the Tijuana Brass, who also happened to be the A of A&M. And I learned he, that. I had no I idea. Didn't I didn't either. Mm-hmm. I no thought A&M was like AM for radio. I didn't even know they were, <laughs> it was like clever. two names. I like how Carolyn no, extrapolates. <laughs> Amelia Pavilion mm-hmm. here. Um, yeah, he immediately loved it though. And so they signed with A&M on April 22nd, 1969. Um, and I want to give you guys an idea of just how fast their trajectory was. Because while... We're not going to argue that they definitely put in their time and hard work and paid their dues. I mean, Carolyn just told you how how long they had been working for this. Um, after they signed with A&M, they kind of went from zero to hero, mm-hmm. little Hercules reference there, uh, in a span of about a year, honestly. A&M was just well known as a great place to be. And this is important because of how the Carpenters were treated, because when their debut album, Offering, which included their cover of the Beatles song, Ticket to Ride... Um, when that flopped, Herb Alpert and A&M continued to believe in them. They didn't cut them loose. They continued to believe in them. Alpert says he just firmly believed in Karen's voice and in Richard's ability to arrange, um, which was really, really smart of him because the Carpenters would end up delivering A&M more hits than any other artist in the 1970s. Really? Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know that – I don't – at first I'm like, shocking, but – Maybe not really, because they had just string upon string. Right. Hit after hit. Um, yeah. Um, so in early 1970, Burt Bacharach, who was another A&M artist, and he was someone that Richard and Karen really admired. Like, they fanned out over Burt Bacharach. <laughs> I love Burt Bacharach. It's almost like Engelbert Humperdinck, right? <laughs> yes. Um, anyway, Burt Bacharach caught wind of the Carpenters. Um, he loved them. 
he asked them to open for him for a charity event, as well as join him on some of his upcoming tour dates. And this is actually how their first breakout hit, Close to You, came to be. And there's a really great story behind that that Kristen's going to tell you about next week. Um, And then Close to You was followed very closely with We've Only Just Begun, which I'm going to tell you um, a fun story about that next week. And really, those two songs hit the charts. And honestly, you guys, they just exploded, right? That's that's kind of all it took. It's like... um it's like as if a new sound was being born in that moment. And people tend to, to, they tend to latch onto the emotive lyrics of the Carpenters, kind of paired with the mellow vibe and label it as cheeseball. I'm going to say cheeseball so many times during this episode. But that completely dismisses the musicality of what Herb Alpert was hearing. Like Herb Alpert right. understood that there was something magical in what Richard was producing paired with that voice. That with voice. that voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think like, um, you know, when I said, and then with those two, you know, those two songs hit the charts and then they just exploded. I mean, honestly, can we think of two better, almost better songs to explode oh, with? Right. It's like right? they, those are winners. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a mystery why those are really two of the most popular Carpenter songs to this day. Well, and their first two, for their all first the, two. For all the people who got married in 1970 and 1971 and showed up at my <laughs> tribute band concert at the dinner theater, these I were know. the songs that they had at their wedding. How many people have mm-hmm. we've only just begun at their wedding? Oh my God. Millions the whole of generation. people. A whole yeah, generation right. of people getting married had that song. Mm-hmm. Great song. Um, yeah, so 1971 was arguably the most significant of the Carpenters' career. It started, like I said, with Close to You. It ended with the Tan album. Kristen mentioned it earlier. <laughs> it was really called Carpenters, but everybody has just, it's become known as the Tan album because it's this big tan envelope. Um, and then they went from virtual unknowns to the top of the world. Uh, no, but really, they did end up, they ended 1971 at the top of the music world, but their schedule that year was punishing. Here's just some some stats. In 1971, they played about 150 shows. Okay, so that's right out of the gate. 150 shows. In 1972 and 73, they did over 170. Oh my God. So we're just adding, adding. Between April of 1969 and January of 1971, so a little over a year and a half, they recorded and promoted two albums and six singles, and they didn't get a break after because they had to start work on that tan album. And they're touring. Um, they were... Yeah, and touring and doing punishing. personal, prom- like promotional appearances wow. on everything. They were completely overwhelmed. Richard says it was all too much too soon. Yeah. But he also says that they had the time of their lives. Aww. Like they were loving it. Because um, they were on the top of the world. Yeah, but I know. Um, and ironically, that song wasn't um, a song yet. Um, on March 16th, 1971. So again, you guys, we're only um, not even quite two years after they signed. Wow. Because they signed in um, April of 1969. At the 13th annual Grammys, which were, um, fun fact, the first to be broadcast on live TV, the Carpenters won Best New Artist, as well as they also won Best Contemporary Vocal Performance by a Group, Duo, or Chorus for Close to You, beating out, this is a really big win, mm-hmm. they beat out Simon and Garfunkel, Jackson, the Jackson 5, Chicago, and the Beatles. That's amazing. Isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. And so I think that all the people who take themselves too seriously would say that's a huge injustice, that the Beatles are the epitome 
of um, quality music, and the Carpenters would be the opposite of that. But what they're failing to recognize is that the Beatles also recognized the Carpenters as being really amazing music. They were on par with each other. It's just different. Mm -hmm. It's just different music. Right. Well, Paul McCartney said she had the best female voice he had ever heard, like in the world. Paul McCartney after listening says to Ticket that. to Ride. Yeah, yes, exactly. I think it was. Exactly. Um, speaking of their success, I think it was a. It was the marriage of finding the right sound, which was Karen's very un- unique and recognizable voice, to go with the right song, and that was mm. Richard's gift. That was part of he the knew. gift that he had. And then when the stars align in such a way, to such a degree, the public can't ignore it. You just can't. That is why all the girls in town follow you all around. Just like me, they long to be close to you. Their success is swift, but not accidental at all. And it's largely due to that incredible bond between Richard and Karen. So let's talk about that mm-hmm. for a little bit. Um, you know, I, and again, you guys referencing the book, um, the Car- Carpenter's book we referenced earlier, um, Richard says, we were almost like male, female clones. Karen was more than my sibling and creative partner. She was my best friend. Oh, that makes me sad. So there, I, so their closeness is obviously very well known. Um, it's, it's notorious almost. And it's, um, I would say it's both admirable. It's aspirational. It's also a little bit weird. The level of the closeness is to some, it would be called a bond to others. I think it might've been a prison and we'll talk about Karen a little bit later and how that closeness may have affected her life. But there's no doubt at all that the closeness is born of love. Dysfunction aside, it's born of love. And even if it did cause problems, um, I think there are so many tortured artists where you have a relationship with somebody that is a difficult relationship, but the world benefits from the art that the, that those people create. And their closeness produced a sound that transcended easy, easy listening. It it begged you to get inside and feel all the feels with them. And that comes from their closeness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think um, part of what even fueled um, their bond and their music really was um, was kind of a sibling rivalry. I think Karen was jealous of Richard's, um, you know, favored status with their mother. And mm-hmm. Richard, I think, was envious of Karen becoming the focal point of mm-hmm. the duo. So she was the star. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They had to be the best they could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know that I necessarily agree with um, people saying it was weird and odd. The way I saw it is that they they worked together. Like, they were together. I mean, I just told you about 170 concerts a year, not to mention all of the in-session recordings or the, you know, in-studio recording sessions, the personal appearances, the travel, the, they, they literally were joined together all the time. Um, 
so much so that, you know, Karen, one of her um, hobbies was needlepoint. Carolyn, did you know that? Carolyn needlepoints, um, those of you listening. Um, but she um, needlepointed Richard a pillow that says, this is when I was sort of like, ah, said there is no KC <laughs> without RC. Like she almost didn't see herself as oh, a separate wow. person. There is no <gasps> KC without RC. They were so close and people people speculated so much about their bond and their closeness that some people actually insinuated an ancestral relationship. Um, When they were 24 and 28, they knew they needed to leave home, Um, but they didn't know how to do it without hurting their mother's feelings. Um, So they evaded the issue. They just, instead of confronting it, they just avoided and evaded the issue entirely. Again, they bought a new house for mom and dad. Um, So they're thinking, oh, mom and dad will be like, oh, well, thank you so much for this new house. And then Richard and Karen, that'll be easy because then they'll just stay in the old house. No, Agnes was like, what? Why would we want this new house? So anyway, so it turns out that Karen and Richard took the new house and they say that moving in together just seemed natural for them um, because they were together all the time. But to many people, adult siblings living together um, seemed really odd. And so- yeah. People started making allegations of incest. Um, well, after, they, can I ch- chime on yeah, to that a little or yeah, yeah, tag yeah. on to that a little bit? Because um, I read some stuff that was a little bit unnerving. Um, and I think Richard even alluded to some of this. But I think A&M records, as much as they were great and, you know, are the reason that we know of the Carpenters, they kind of played around with this little mystery of incest. And they the did. way that, well, he, he talks about the way that they're photographed on the mm-hmm. album covers with the soft, like unfocused, um, whatever lenses that they use mm-hmm. and, you know, the way they stand and it gives the illusion or it could mm-hmm. possibly give the illusion that there is something more there. Like than, a couple. Yeah, exactly. Like a couple. Which, yeah can tease people, I guess, a little en- enough to say, mm-hmm. oh, this looks well, intriguing. Well, it's, it's a suggestion, right? It's right. They're almost suggesting it. And I know that they said that at the beginning of the career, Richard says some people thought they were married um, and photographers were always asking them to kiss, which they were like, oh, what? gross. It's my brother. She's my sister. But besides their, re- their strong relationship, their squeaky clean image was also something they kind of fought against as the years went on. But it's hard when you're a brother and a sister. If you're a brother and a sister and you're not squeaky clean, that's where you could get into some dicey territory, right? It's just, Mm -hmm. it's tough being brother and sister. I'm not sure they could have ever broken out from that. No. I agree. And I think, too, just with all that was happening in historically in our country with what we were coming out of in terms of Vietnam and all Mm -hmm. of those aspects of... um, current events, this was a way to kind of almost let the public know it's going to be okay. Like, you know, we're back to apple pie and Chevrolet yeah, yeah, yeah. and hot dogs mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And this was yeah. the, another way that A&M could, um, yeah, mold them into something that the, the public was craving. Yeah. A lot of the mm-hmm. public was craving. Well, and there, there are two sides to that, too. What was the public craving? Because the era was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It, it was full of performers living on the edge and dying because of it. Jamis Joplin mm-hmm. and Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix. And here come this brother and sister who still lived at home with their parents <laughs> singing about rainy days and Mondays, right? But at the same time, here's, here's the catch in all of that. Because yes, we're buying the records of people who are living on the edge and dying because of it. But the average people identified with rainy days and Mondays. 
that was very mm-hmm. real. That's not ho-hum. Mm-hmm. That's very serious for people. And when she's saying about rainy days and Mondays, we believed her. We felt it as if she was feeling it herself. And so that makes us feel seen maybe more so than people singing about an acid trip. Nothing is really wrong. Feeling like I don't belong. Carpenters or Karen Carpenter without talking about anorexia. And we struggled with this because Karen Carpenter is so much more than her disease. We have so much respect for her. And this is not the only story that we want to relate, but it's a big part of the story. Nor is it our place to cast stones about the origins of her disease, but there are some agreed upon difficulties that could have planted those seeds. And in the end, I mean, let's just think about this. In the end, this is a podcast about our youth. And the death of Karen Carpenter was an important milestone for those of us who were coming of age at that time when she died. So for many of us, her death was an introduction to the concept of eating disorders as a disease. We had never even heard of this concept before. And for those of us who had seen The Best Little Girl in the World, the made-for-TV movie starring Jennifer Jason Lee about anorexia, Um, We had heard that word. We had heard the word anorexia and we knew what it was. But if you were like me, Karen Carpenter's death was the first time we understood how serious it could be. Because I was like, what? You can die? I, you guys, it shook Mm -hmm. me. Oh, me too. When she died, it shook me. And it took me directly back to my experience of watching that movie and putting those two things together and going, Oh my God, I get it right and now. And also having... So this was like... I was just going to say, also having to connect... So having to, to connect in our heads, um, you know, she... Yes, she died of a heart attack, let's not forget, that was brought on right. by all the stresses that right. the eating disorder um, caused her body. So that was also kind of hard for me to understand, I remember, as, you know, Very a much. 13-year-old um, girl as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Because that's what they reported. And we're like, but she's 32. So when this happened, this was like a clarion call to the world. It was like, wake up. This is real. And that's really how I felt. Like I suddenly had been woken up and understood that eating disorders were very serious and could be happening around me. So we're not going to gloss over this topic. We're going to try and be sensitive. But if you or a loved one is struggling with disordered eating or body dysmorphia and you need help, you can call or text the National Eating Disorders Association by visiting nationaleatingdisorders.org. And for more information about what to say to help the people in your life develop a healthy relationship with food, please consider also visiting the website withall.org. That's W-I-T-H-A-L-L dot org. So, as we all know... Karen Carpenter died at the age of just 32 on February 4th, 1983. And I have a very distinct memory of being with my mom in the car when we hear this news. And it made an impact because my mom had, you know, like I said before, she had all of three pop albums in her collection. And this was one of them. The Carpenters were in the collection. And Karen Carpenter passed this test that my parents had for quality. She had earned a special place in our record cabinet. So this was a very heavy car ride. I know exactly what street we were on. I know what direction we were heading. I'll never forget it. And Richard, he had his own problems. It wasn't just Karen. 
And he had um, an addiction to quaaludes that started early in his career, which may or may not have been started when his mom offered him quaaludes when she finds him up in the middle of the night unable to sleep. It was something that her doctor had given her and uh, so that she could sleep, and she just thought she was helping. I mean, it came from her doctor. I mean, it's like, not drugs. It's my doctor. It's right. called clay, quaaludes. Yeah, the prescription. Yeah. You know, that's not drugs. A prescription. Right. Now, let me be clear. No one is to blame for the tragedy that was to come. The Carpenters loved their children fiercely, but it's generally agreed upon that their dysfunction did some real damage, especially their mom, who was extremely overbearing, who favored Richard, the piano prodigy, and where Karen was supposed to be a proper lady and get married and have babies, which she failed to do, thus failing her parents, thus leading to a self-loathing and a loneliness that could have manifested as anorexia. So much so that in the 1989 made-for-TV movie that we've talked about already quite a bit, the Karen Carpenter story, the mom is portrayed by the same actress who plays Nurse Ratched in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And it was this was produced by Richard Carpenter. So he really had to pass off on that decision. So they have dueling problems, um, Karen and Richard do, which are exacerbated by the fact that they don't have enough privacy from each other. Yes, they were extremely, extremely close, but they've managed to move out of their parents' house to their parents' great disapproval. Let's chew on that one a little <laughs> bit. And they buy a house together. Like that's their growing up. They're growing up as buying a house together. Um, so Karen is never really allowed to grow out of the shadow of her family, especially her older brother. She's always the kid sister, even though she really was the star. Just like you said, Carolyn, that they're kind of, you know, there's some rivalry between them because of this. She really was the star. He knew it. She did not. She always feels like second banana. Everyone's keeping their eye on her, telling her what to do, scrutinizing her every move. And she isn't able to develop her own sense of self outside of these people. And we know from so many people that one thing that she really wanted was to fall in love, mm -hmm. to have the white picket fence, to have a family. And this wasn't happening for her in the same way that it was for Richard. Well, it was just really difficult. And can I just interject something? One thing that is very well known about um, anorexia is that it's about it's about gaining control over something in your life. Um, right. And if you think about Karen Carpenter, she's trying, for all those things you just said, Kristen, she's trying to have some control over so many things in her life. From the time she was nine, 18, 19 years old, other people were controlling so many aspects of that girl's life that this Everything. was something that she could control. Yeah. She had no control of her career. She had no control of her personal life. She had no control of her her sexual being. I mean, you're right. This is very much about a person who had exactly zero say in how her life went. Even though some people may have said, no, no, she contributed, but she doesn't matter if she didn't feel that way. Exactly. That's what I was going to so say. Her, she didn't feel yeah, it though. She didn't mm -hmm. feel that way at all. Her older brother is somebody she looked up to and trusted. And so he has control over her, whether he meant to or not. Maybe she even, you know, gave him that control. She handed that control over. It doesn't matter. It doesn't well, I was going to say, you think about um, the musical arrangements. I mean, we've talked about how he is this um, savant in that area, but down mm -hmm. to how she even sings and what notes she hits. Oh, and, yes. I mean, it's just not, you're going to sing this and you're going to wear this or whatever. It is yeah. 
almost robotic, like she's almost programmed, you know, to do exactly what he said, exactly the way he said to do it. So her concern with weight comes very early in her teens. So we know that this is um, something that she comes to the table with, Mm -hmm. right? And even though it it really never appears that she has a weight problem, which is very common with people who have eating disorders, Um, because we know that's the weight problem is not what anorexia is about. Like you said, Michelle, it's about control of which she had none, and it's about dysmorphia or a twisted perception of what you actually look like. So all it takes is for one person one time to refer to her as Richard's chubby sister, and the wheels are set in motion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's all that it takes. And those words or that image is what she's going to come back to over and over again for years to come. So the drums, remember, she's a drummer. The drums become her security blanket. She can hide behind them. She can hide her body. She can hide her imperfection, almost as if she's not worthy of all of the attention. And think about how weird that is to have a lead singer performing from the back of the stage. Yeah. Right? I don't know how she did it. I think that makes her even so much more impressive. Like, I didn't know that until maybe I was an adult that she was drummer Mm -hmm. first, right? And and that's really what she thinks of herself as. She, even until the 80s, she thinks of herself as a drummer, not a and singer. And it wasn't until audiences started to complain because they're like, uh, where's <laughs> Where the singer? <laughs> right. Where's they needed the singer? a focal point. I mean, that's what they were they saying. Needed, mm-hmm. Yes. They needed someone to look at. But the drums were – well, and let's keep in mind also that her mother wasn't really in favor of her playing the drums. That was something very masculine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This was not something for ladies to do. And so here is another place where she's failed her parents. For us as as – young girls, it would have been very cool because we didn't see many girls who were drumming. Right. So that could have been a really cool thing. So when they want her to leave the drums and perform from the front of the stage, this does not go over Can well. Can I just say, my heart and is I, breaking. Yeah, I just ahead. want to say, yeah. my heart oh, is God, breaking. Can we just stop at this moment? I know. Yeah. Because again, there's obviously the not control. They're telling her what to do. Yeah. And it is obvious how much she loves the drums. So it's not even yeah. like she w- that was just a hiding thing, which was huge. She loved playing the drums, and, and you're she's, taking she did. that Phenomenal. away from her. Yes. I mean, she's, she's listed really when you ask drummers who are, you know, especially recently with the you know, Taylor Hawkins' <laughs> death, and they'll list, like, great drummers. She is listed among great drummers. Mm-hmm. And Isn't that to have crazy? taken that from her, this thing that she yeah. did love. And I'm going to drop in this week's um, Weekly Reader, you guys. Um, it There is on YouTube a concert. It was on BBC. And so it's from 1976, which I think of as being the real, like a good sweet spot for the Carpenters, right? Mm-hmm. And they do this really funny thing where um, Karen comes out in a little t-shirt that says lead sister. And you guys, this is 1976. And when she comes running out, she has no bra on because that was a 1976 thing, right? Yeah. She's so thin that that's the first thing I noticed. But okay, so anyway... You, you try not to look at that if you go to the Weekly Reader this week. Um, but what I want you to watch is she comes out and he's singing this really funny song about kind of their origin story. And so she starts on this one drum and then she moves to other drums. And then he's like, and then we got her a drum kit. And then someone pushes out a big drum, you know, a big drum kit. So she gets to play the drums for like, it's like a solid five or six minute song. You guys watch it. The elation on her face oh, is like nothing I've ever seen. She is having the time of her life drumming, and it just broke my heart. Oh. <laughs> and just think about if you are 
if you're having the time of your life drumming and you know what to do with your body when you're drumming, your body is taken care of when you're drumming, to then put you at the front of the stage to stand, what do you do with your hands? Yeah. What do you do with your body? What do you, how, if you're not a natural mover. Yeah. Are you supposed to sway? Do you move your hips? Yeah, what do you do? Do you? She walks up. I've noticed when I've been watching this past uh, week, I've been watching a lot of old, you know, public performance um, footage on YouTube or just concerts. She goes, which is like a lot of people do. She goes and she sings to the band members a lot. Um, mm-hmm. She sings with, she sits down next to Richard a lot. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, she's thinking in her head, everybody's staring at me. Everybody's staring Everyone's at my body. At mm-hmm. That's and she right. She doesn't ever look super comfortable to me when she's, she doesn't, um, you know, singing, just holding a microphone or something. It's just yeah. the way she stands and her movements just don't seem that she's, yeah, so that she's comfortable in who she is or in her body. I would like I would like to track the severity of her illness based on when she came out from behind the drums. Mm-hmm. Did it get worse when she came out with all of the additional scrutiny? I mean, just the literal scrutiny of you didn't see my body, now you see my body. Then you add, I don't know what to do with my body, and everyone's judging me for not knowing what to do with my body. Mm-hmm. It's I would like to see how Well, and let's not forget that, that was just one aspect of it. The the way I look physically yeah. Um, is one aspect of what I can control. That was one aspect of her disease. Yeah. Then it's all that other, the stuff that just, all that that lack of control that just kept building and building as the years yep. went on and as they got more yep. Um, famous. Yeah. Yep. So the swiftness of their fame, um, it really intensified both of their problems. The constant touring, the schedule was insane. There was, I mean, carpenter mania was a thing. It was just like Beatle mania. People are closing in on you. They're grabbing at you. It was too much too fast. And remember, they still live at home with their parents. Um, And Karen's weight loss is a concern for everybody, including their fans, many of whom are scared that she's actually suffering from cancer because she's so skinny. It's so skinny that she can't hide it. You know, so many people can hide it really successfully, and she wasn't doing that. Nobody is looking away from this. They're desperately trying to get her to eat, but she's really masterful at making people think that she's eating. And in 1975, she collapses on stage during a concert in Las Vegas. She weighs less than 90 pounds, and they end up canceling their tours to Europe and Japan, which she's shocked at. She cannot believe that that's something that they're doing. And they're like, are you crazy? You're very ill. I understand people. She can't subject this to you. Five, five, I believe. It's not like she's four, nine and weighs less than 90 pounds. She's like five, five. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. And then after that, she goes, she starts to get better. They cancel those tours. She stays home. She rests. She starts to get better. And then it's Richard's turn to lose it. He's suffering from insomnia, panic attacks, and depression. His addiction to quaaludes is ramping up. And there are differing opinions on what happened here. But in 1979, possibly semi-comatose on quaaludes, Richard possibly fell down a flight of stairs backstage, and he finally booked himself into rehab. And although Karen appears to be getting better at this point, her depression and her lack of self-worth actually intensify during this time when she starts trying to make a life of her own. She wants her own home. She does manage to get her own home. When she finally does meet somebody, they get married after just two months of dating. A red flag. (laughs) Big, big red flag. And shortly before the wedding, she learns that he's lied about one very important thing that he has had a vasectomy and he refuses to get it reversed 
And there's just one thing that she wants, and that's to have a family. family. And she marries him anyway. What is she, all of like 29 or 30 years old, isn't she? Yes, exactly. And you know why she marries him anyway? No, why? Oh, God, tell me. This just breaks my heart. She told her mom that she didn't want to marry him, and her mom said, we've paid for everything. No. It's booked. (gasps) What? I read that like three different places. Sorry, so, I didn't yes. mean to shout. Oh, my God. No, it was her mother that insisted that she follow through. Oh, my God. But this speaks so much to poor Karen because as a 29 or 30-year-old, mom said you have to follow through, so I have to follow through. She didn't have a mind of her own to say, well, I don't care she if you didn't. pay for it. I'm not marrying yeah. him. Or I'm paying for it myself Yeah, because yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. a millionaire. Yeah, she matter. still had to follow exactly. the, yes. guy, the direction of mama. Yeah. So her mom was thinking, this is going to be your one chance to live this dream of mine. You're staying oh, with it. You're marrying now. And that just breaks my heart. That That is tragic. That is so tragic. And so obviously when they get married, her depression is so bad. She spirals downward. The marriage quickly crumbles, obviously. And by 1981, she's desperately in need of treatment, like real treatment. Wasn't he abusive and she does too, find it. by the way? Oh, yes. Yeah. The husband yes. was in money. In many ways. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. And it turned out he came to the table with zero money. Right. Um, oh, I didn't know that. And just started using all of her money. Mm. Yeah. Um, so she finds a doctor that will give her treatment. Not coincidentally, the doctor is the man who wrote the book that the made-for-TV movie, The Best Little Girl in the World, is based on. So we're going to the person who recognized anorexia mm-hmm. for the first time, really. And one of his theories... And this is, this is not to cast blame on any of us as parents. Um, I know many, many people who are incredible, supporting, and loving parents to their children, but still their ch- children suffer from eating disorders. This is because of what our children bring to the table. We only have so much influence. And so I want to be able to, I want to make sure that people know that I'm not saying um, that parents cause eating disorders. But there is one thing in common that this doctor claimed was common in all of his anorexia patients. And that was fear that if they don't live up to their family's expectations, they will not be loved. And legend has it that this doctor found it imperative that they surround Karen with this love and tell her overtly how much they love her. And the mom resists, saying, this is just not how we work. This is not how we operate. This is not how our family works. I mean, and at the end of the day, anorexia is about control. She had no control over her life, her family, her career. She's released from treatment around Thanksgiving, like you said, of 1982, and she dies just Mm -hmm. two months later. Mm. Herb Alpert has a quote in the Carpenter's book that I find um, so sad. I mean, we might as well just keep up. We might as well stay down here, right, in the pit of despair. (laughs) But I just wanted to read it to you guys. He said, she was happiest in the studio. One of the saddest memories I have of Karen was when she bounced into my office in late 1982, two weeks after she got out of the facility in New York. She was so excited about wanting to record and do concerts again. I asked her, what do you really love to do? And she'd say, I love to play drums. She couldn't accept the fact that she was a world-class singer. And then the worst happened. Maybe in another era, it would have been possible to deal differently with her problem. I love you for in my life. You are a friend of mine. 
solve for you. Okay, everybody, let's switch gears, take a deep breath, and let's get ready for a trip down Carolyn's rabbit hole. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Okay. And even some of these are almost sad now that after I'm thinking of the conversations we <laughs> oh, had, no. even though we put a sad spin on them. Well, it's like I almost, I don't know if I feel sacrilegious isn't the right word, but you know, like, oh, but anyway, they're fun. We're going to go with it. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. Did you know that Karen and Richard were once contestants on the dating game? Wait, okay. Oh, wait. Not together. Yeah, she was the first part of the show and he was the second part. Of the- oh, no, no. Okay, she but was- what I mean they- is they didn't choose yeah, each other. No, no. They both they had didn't like- choose each other as no. dates. Oh, God. Well- okay. See, that's where people are going to go. <laughs> okay. No. It was like a promotional thing and um, okay. they actually performed right before it started. And then um, she was the bachelorette or whatever they call yeah. it that comes out and asks the questions. And I got to say, it was a l- kind of hard watching her ask these questions because, oh. you know, she just isn't always comfortable. Even even in interviews, there's yeah. kind of a little bit of an awkwardness. So she kind of has that. And then, of course, you get these gigolo guys, you know, with these double Ew. entendre answers. And Ugh. she's just, oh, exactly. So anyway, but well, she goes and chooses bachelor number two, who's this British guy, works for some cosmetic agency or something. But for me, it got even crazier because he comes around the corner, they do that awkward hug, and then the announcer is going to tell them their prize package. And he says, "Um, and now let me tell you what you've won, an all-expense-paid vacation to Roanoke, Virginia. (laughs) What? (laughs) What? I'm going to put a link to this in our show notes that you can go on YouTube oh, fun. and watch it because yeah. um, it's funny. And I want to find out. I don't think they ever went on the date. Um, but speaking of dating, I know we said she probably didn't um, have any long-lasting relationships, but she dated some people. And maybe you mm-hmm. guys know this. I did not until I went down my rabbit hole. And this might have to be the most eclectic list of men I have ever okay. seen written down <laughs> on a piece of paper. Are you ready? Yeah, she yeah. dated. Okay. Tony Danza. <gasps> Alan Osmond. What? <laughs> Mark Harmon. Oh, my God. Mike Kerb, who was the founder of Kerb Records. And Steve Martin. <gasps> what? what? Now, yes. Now, I don't know if, like, date means two dates, how, whatever. So, okay. So, but it, yeah, all of the above. If you're me she yeah. just at least mm-hmm. went out on one date with those people, that's hilarious. I agree. All right, jump it back in the rabbit hole because I thought these things were fun. Um, I, I didn't know that Olivia Newton-John was one of Karen's best friends. Isn't that <gasps> cute? Like, oh, that's so I just cute. thought that was really that's fun. a good pairing. Um, and I, this is going on to Richard being kind of a jealous individual um, that when they went on their Japan tour, Neil Sedaka joined them on that. He was like hmm. the opening act. But Richard thought that Neil was getting was upstaging the carpenter. So he oh, got, he fired Neil Sedaka <gasps> from the tour and Neil had to fly oh. home from Japan. Um I found three fun duets of Karen singing with others on some of their TV hmm. specials. Um and again the variety of people here is a little bit crazy. Uh Ella Fitzgerald, John Denver, oh, mm. and this person might become our new John Sebastian and John Davidson. She did a duet with oh, John Davidson kidding. on their hour music special, Music, Music, Music. Um, <laughs> Couldn't come up with a title for that one. 
Last time it was music, music. How about this time? Music, music, music. Oh, okay. I'll go fast here. The former AM Records Complex is now the home to Jim Henson Entertainment. And mm-hmm. people there have reported sightings of Karen Carpenter <gasps> near a dressing room, which is near where her oh. official office was located. You guys. That there's a Karen Oh, my God. I think I might. We should take I feel a picture like I'm right, start now, crying. right now. Oh, Both okay. Michelle and I have our hands over our mouth. <laughs> I know. Oh, my. Okay. Yes, her spirit, they say, lingers. Oh, Okay, wow. that literally made my eyes, like, well up with tears, not out of sadness, but just out of, like, emotion of, like... Of like, she has because I believe yes, I believe in this, yeah. and so mm-hmm. yeah. the thought that, oh my God, Karen, show us, show us yourself <laughs> now. Because yes. We're talking about we'll how you. much we love you. We'll help you. Please, That's why we got right disconnected now, earlier? I want my lights to energy. flicker. <laughs> if you're around, yeah. my lights need to flicker. <laughs> oh gosh. So yeah, that was a fun thing. Another, according to Petula Clark, famed for singing downtown. 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 I love that song. She Sorry, and Karen. Too. Um, were propositioned to partake in a threesome after they stopped by Elvis oh. Presley's dressing room after a concert in Las Vegas. And Petula said Elvis looked kind of shocked when they didn't accept the offer because he'd never been, like, you know, denied what he wanted. So, Ladies and gentlemen, this is why we love Carolyn's Rabbit Hole. This is why mm-hmm. this segment is our favorite. Damn, that's a good where fun on fact. earth do you find <laughs> that, that is stuff? one that might be one of my favorites so far. Yeah. I have been researching something. this for three weeks and I didn't never come across, across one well, of those facts. I put in Not just one. weird things in my Google search bar to see what, what Karen weird Carpenter stuff comes threesome? Up. Threesome. That's what yeah. you have to be searching. <laughs> no, I can't remember what I put in that, that came up, but I wish she had had a threesome. <gasps> yeah. Oh. Yeah, you do, don't you? <laughs> I um, do. I feel bad this for this one kind of gave me the the chills in a different way. And it's it's a rabbit hole thing. It's not funny. But um, I read in a book that seems to be researched and all that, that um, the night that Karen died, um, she had gone, had dinner with her family, had gone out and even purchased snacks because that night she was going to watch TV. She wanted to watch the, I think it was a miniseries, Shogun, which if you guys remember oh, yeah. that, it mm-hmm. starred Richard Chamberlain. Richard Chamberlain. Right. Well, mm-hmm. Here's what's interesting. Did you know that the original Close to You, Burt Bacharach, yes, and Hal Davis, um, the song was sung by Richard Chamberlain in 1963. Close to You is their first song that shoots them to the stratosphere. Originally, the song was sung by Richard Chamberlain. Burt Bacharach was like that. You know, we knew we didn't have a good arrangement for that. And then her final night, she's... um, getting ready to watch this show this that starred him. And in my head, I'm wondering, do you think she ever made the connection? I mean, I'm almost thinking she had to. Right. And on another just happy note, last night, just out of fun, I just decided I'm going to put Karen Carpenter in the search, you know, little bubble on Twitter and just see what comes up. And you guys, it made my heart just so happy because I would say within like the last four days, that's I don't, I went back. It was more than 100 tweets, all different things, just about just on a random, just random day. things like, mm-hmm. oh, I was listening to the Carpenters today. I love Karen Carpenter's voice and people talking about the best drummers. And they're talking Phil Collins and they're talking Taylor and they're talking Karen Carpenter. She's still on people's minds. Like, and this is current. It wasn't like last wonderful. year. It was within the last five days. You could just find random, um, you know, comments about her, all positive, all about her music and um, her drumming. And that just made my heart that happy. makes my heart happy, too. Don't you remember? 
just like so many stories from the world of music, the Carpenter's story is one of both triumph and heartbreak. And we gained so much by having them be a part of our growing up. People gained so much by having them be a part of their weddings. And we lost so much when Karen Carpenter died. The world of music lost one of its most recognizable voices and Richard Carpenter lost his other half. But Richard Carpenter has recognized his own legacy and the legacy of his sister's voice by repackaging and remastering their songs and music videos, participating in Carpenter's tribute albums, releasing his own music. And when you see him in interviews today, you see nothing but love coming from him. You really do. I have no doubt he's benefited from an immense amount of therapy that has really served him well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really hope he has. I hope so too. But he appears to be in a place of gratitude. And that's where we are coming from today. No matter how heartbreaking the end was, Karen Carpenter's life made an impact on us for which we will always be grateful. Thank you so much for listening today. Yes, thank you guys for listening and make sure to join us next week when we'll be giving you the stories behind some of our favorite Carpenter songs. I'm so excited for that, you guys. Oh, I can't wait. Uh, thank you so much for all of your support for this past four seasons. As we start season five, we have some big bucket list items that you can help us fill by sharing our podcast with others. You guys know that the more people who listen means the more visible we get, which means Tina Fey and Amy Poehler will eventually hear us <laughs> and want to produce us. So thank you very much for your help with that. And to our supporters on Patreon, we honestly couldn't keep trucking without you. This week, we are giving a special shout out to patrons Mike, Margaret, Tracy, Sherry, Anne and Marie. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for taking your support to the next level. And if you want to check out all the fun perks our patrons get, just go to patreon.com and put Pop Culture Preservation Society in the search bubble or go to our website or Instagram page and click the links. In the meantime, let's all raise our glasses for a toast. Courtesy of our Santa Monica friends Jack, Janet, and Chrissy, two good times. Two happy days. To Little House on the Prairie. Cheers. 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 The information, opinions, and comments expressed on the Pop Culture Preservation Society podcast belong solely to Carolyn, the Crushologist, and Hello Newman, and are in no way representative of our employers or affiliates. And though we truly believe we are always right, there is always a first time. The PCPS is written, produced, and recorded in Minneapolis, Minnesota, home of the fictional WJM Studios and our beloved Mary Richards. Nanu Nanu, keep on trucking, and may the force be with you. Spread a little love and it will keep moving on Something always happens whenever we're together We get a happy feeling when we're singing